Hello, I'm Dr. Bill Valenti, and I'm chair of the Medical Society's Infectious Diseases Committee. I'm also a member of the Medical Society's Committee on Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Terrorism Response. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Dufour, Medical Director, Division of Epidemiology, New York State Department of Health. We're going to have a discussion about the Zika virus in order to offer some explanation as to what Zika is, how it's spread and diagnosed, and who's most at risk for Zika. We will also discuss the measures that the New York State Department of Health has taken to guide and protect all New Yorkers and the best means by which to prevent the Zika virus infection. Welcome, Dr. Dufour. We have some questions here that I thought would help our physicians in New York State understand a little bit more about uh, Zika. It seems like it came out of nowhere. I, I know that it was first described in 1947, but where has it been all the time? Thank you so much for having me here. We have known about this virus for a long time since it was first identified in the Ugandan forest in 1947. For over 50 years, there were really isolated, sporadic case reports identified only in the medical literature. There may well have been many a case during that time throughout Africa and Southeast Asia. However, we only had a small number of isolated, sporadic reports in the medical literature. Subsequently, in about 2007, there was a relatively small outbreak in Micronesia on an island called Yap Island. And that was characterized in full and described very nicely in a New England Journal article in 2009. Subsequently, larger outbreaks were seen in the French Polynesian areas, which most travelers know more as Bora Bora and Tahiti in 2013 to 14. And then in May 2015 was first identified in Brazil. And now, of course, as many have seen in the media, has spread considerably throughout the Americas to now include over 32 countries or territories and is continuing to spread, and we continue to expect to get more areas involved as time continues. Thanks for that little bit of history. My understanding, this belongs to the flavivirus family, but what are the other family members that we see already? Firstly, for our physicians listening to this, I would like to clarify that some folks have asked me, well, if it's a flavivirus, what is an arbovirus? So for those that aren't dealing with bugs every day, just to highlight an arbovirus is an arthropod-borne virus. So that merely indicates the sort of mode of transmission. It's a virus that's transmitted through the bite of either an infected mosquito or tick. And in this larger group of arboviruses and also within the family of flaviviruses, in that family, other closely related viruses, West Nile virus, dengue virus, yellow fever virus, are the ones that we would commonly hear about that are most closely related. What can you tell us about virus transmission? One of the most confusing things, I think, in media reports is just how this virus gets into people. The dominant mode of transmission throughout the Americas right now and in past outbreaks has been mosquito-borne. And this is primarily through an 80s species mosquito, in particular the 80s Aegypti 
which is seen throughout the tropical regions and up to the southern parts of the United States. It has been highlighted over the last couple months, as it's been in the media, that there is a possibility based on lab studies of transmission with the Aedes albopictus, which is a mosquito that we have moving further up northward throughout the U.S., reaching to the southern parts of New York State, including New York City, Long Island, Westchester area. And we do not yet know if this will be an effective mode of transmission. That is yet to be determined, of course, we will keep enhanced surveillance and active control programs, enhancing those that are already in place for that possibility. But the reality is right now, we do not know if that will be a predominant mode of transmission. The second thing that we have learned quite a bit about over the last two months is the risk of maternal to fetal transmission. Although we still have much to learn, we have learned that this is a likely route of transmission, intrauterine and peripartum. And of course, this has been the bulk of the concern reaching to lay public through the media and to providers for the risk of congenital abnormalities to the fetus and babies. Lastly, we have learned most recently over the last month or so more increasingly about the risk of sexual transmission. But there has been increasing concern about this as the CDC has alerted providers over the last two weeks to 14 possible cases across the U.S. that are currently being investigated as possible sexual transmission from male partners who travel to areas with active ongoing mosquito-borne transmission to uh, females that had not traveled in the continental U.S., and some of those females are pregnant. Let's talk a little bit about natural history of disease, but first, what about symptoms? My understanding is that most people with Zika virus infection are really not very symptomatic. Correct. Based on the data from Yap Island, the Micronesia outbreak in 2007, they looked at seroserveys of the whole island and found that approximately 73% of inhabitants were infected. A non-immune population is at significant risk if all of the right pieces are in place with the correct mosquito species and conditions for transmission. However, only 18% of those, or about one-fifth, ended up having symptoms that were noticed to be of significance. Really, four-fifths of those infected did not have any symptoms or had asymptomatic infection, and that is important information as we move forward. Additionally, the vast majority of these folks of all different ages throughout childhood and adult did quite well and had a mild self-limited illness. And when people are symptomatic, what should we be looking for? What should we be thinking of? The four most common symptoms identified from these prior outbreaks and the outbreak in the Americas to date have been fever, subjective or objective fever, a maculopapular rash, arthralgia, and conjunctivitis. This is a non-purulent, non-exudative conjunctivitis. Other additional symptoms that have been noted are headache, myalgia, a retroorbital pain. Generally, the CDC has used approximately two out of those four most common symptoms of subjective or objective fever, arthralgias, conjunctivitis, and maculopapular rash. Is it fair to say then that if we see a patient with two of the four symptoms who's traveled to one of the areas where Zika is prevalent or being transmitted, that we should think about testing? Correct. We need, as physicians in New York State, to think about a few things, testing in a few different scenarios. One of those scenarios would be exactly as you stated. So any individual, a child, 
a man or woman who have traveled to an area with ongoing mosquito-borne active transmission of Zika virus, continuing to advise patients if they are traveling to check and recheck the CDC website to see which countries and territories are included is important. Patient who has been to one of these areas and then during their travel or upon return within approximately two weeks develops any of these symptoms that we discussed. Generally, the incubation period is thought to be most likely three to seven days after exposure. However, up to two weeks is a more conservative estimate that has been used. Additionally, we want to ask all of our pregnant patients if they have traveled to one of these areas so that we can offer them diagnostic testing if they would like to consider it. As many women have certainly come to providers with questions about this, but others may not be aware. And lastly, pediatricians would want to consider asking about maternal travel during pregnancy for any infants born with microcephaly, intracranial calcification, or other abnormalities that may be consistent with congenital Zika virus. My understanding is that in terms of natural history, that there's an early viremic phase and then that goes away after a short period of time and people develop antibodies but no longer have viremia. The question then is about testing. Give us a little information on what testing consists of and how it relates to the natural history of infection. You've got it exactly right that early on, as in many other infectious diseases early on, we see a period of viremia where the virus is in the blood and would be positive by PCR if the blood is collected at that time. This is generally felt to be typically about a week-long period for most patients. Certainly some patients could have a shorter period, a few-day period of viremia before they clear it with their own immune system, or some patients may have a longer period of viremia, potentially up to two or three weeks, but typically it's felt based on the data we have to date that it's about a week-long time period. That's the time period that PCR testing would be really useful. And PCR testing during that time period is thought to be pretty specific and quite sensitive. If the PCR is positive at that time, we would consider that a diagnosis and essentially don't need to go any further with any serological testing unless there was some question about that. The problem, of course, is when we've missed that window of opportunity. And by the way, that viremia is based on about one week after onset of symptoms. And if we might have a negative PCR, if there were no onset of symptoms, such as in an asymptomatic pregnant woman if we're testing, or if someone has missed that time period, then a negative PCR may have missed that window of opportunity to detect viremia and may be negative and yet not indicative of whether infection occurred or not. In that case, we would go to serological testing, as we do with many other infectious diseases. We all know that very early on with many infectious diseases, the antibody testing can be negative. Antibody testing done early in onset of illness or early after exposure may be falsely negative. But if some time period has passed after exposure or onset of illness, or if we have an acute sample but then collect a convalescent sample three weeks later, that would be a much more reliable test in looking for the antibody response. Now, for our listeners, how do they access testing? What should I do? That's a great question because it is not a commercially available test at this time. The CDC is working with commercial labs to try to make this more readily available commercially and in clinical labs throughout the country. 
but at this time it's just uh, not available. And so our state public health lab, the Wadsworth Center in Albany, has worked very hard, very aggressive around the clock to have this testing be made available to residents of New York State who need and are eligible for this testing. And in order to get the testing done, we developed a system that made an essential first step the patient go to their provider to discuss whether they need it, feel the patient is eligible, along with recommendations from our state DOH and CDC, then we will offer that testing without cost to the patient. The testing does have some special requirements for specimen collection, handling, processing, and shipping. We have set up over 115 specimen collection sites throughout the state where these specimens can be drawn both blood and urine are collected, and those specimens are then handled appropriately and shipped to the state public health lab to be tested. The provider needs to set up the patient with the local health department, provide a script for the lab test for Zika virus PCR and antibody testing in the blood and urine for PCR and in the blood for antibody testing. And then the provider does need to work with the specimen collection site and provide them with an IDR form, that's an infection disease requisition form, which can be obtained online and is in our testing advisory on our New York State DOH Zika website. There are three things the provider will assist the patient with, a script as usual, this IDR form, which is a piece of paper that goes with their blood and urine to public health lab, and connecting them with the local health department. For patients that reside in New York City, those providers can go to the New York City Department of Health website and look at their section there for health care providers and find a special Zika virus form that need be filled out and that has a more specific guidance and instructions all laid out on that form. Then who is eligible for Zika testing in New York State? Great. I'm glad you brought that up as this has been a really evolving process as we've learned more and more about the disease and had more capability to offer testing to all New York State residents. Eligibility has changed over time and can be confusing to folks. Our most recent update sent out on March 10th, 2016, was an expansion of Zika virus testing to pregnant women who had unprotected sex with a partner who traveled to an area with active mosquito-borne transmission of Zika virus. These women are now eligible for testing. In addition to those where offering was already established. So in addition to non-pregnant women, men, and children who have symptoms with symptom onset within two weeks of travel, persons who return from travel to a Zika-affected area and develop Guillain-Barre syndrome subsequently, and infants with microcephaly or intracranial calcifications or other concerning congenital abnormality that may be consistent with congenital Zika virus infection, who are born to women with exposure either through travel or sexual transmission. This testing for women with possible sexual transmission is available regardless of whether the sex partner had symptoms consistent with Zika virus infection. Let's get back to the discussion of the viremic phase and how that relates to sexual transmission. What can you tell us about that? We don't know yet how the viremic phase relates to sexual transmission. We do know that there has been virus found in the semen for periods significantly longer than in the blood. If the patient is symptomatic with Zika or found to have Zika, and this data so far is limited to male patients, 
there has been limited data that has shown prolonged shedding of the virus in the semen longer than the viremic period of approximately one week. What we do not know is any larger collection of data yet on how lengthy that time period is of virus in the semen. And the limited studies we have to date show, at least in one case, having a virus found by PCR in the semen up to 10 weeks after onset of illness. We do not know for how long that is viable virus that can replicate and transmit disease. And we also also do not know about transmission from women and vaginal secretions to their partners, and these are areas under active investigation at this time. Well, that's helpful. The question next, of course, is based on what we know, how should we be counseling patients about sexual transmission, especially with regard to pregnant women? The CDC and we at New York State Department of Health have really advised that patients who are pregnant or may be pregnant or at risk of getting pregnant, any male partners who have traveled or any partners who have traveled to areas with ongoing Zika virus transmission, it is strongly recommended that either abstaining or consistent and correctly used condoms be used throughout the duration of the pregnancy. And that is a recommendation focused on protecting the pregnant woman and fetus and given the fact that we do not know for how long this is a risk in the semen. With that said, the cases that have been identified to date have all been in symptomatic males and with females acquiring that disease approximately two weeks after onset of symptoms in the male. That's just some general data that we have to date, but these are very small numbers and not felt to be robust enough to make recommendations on. And so the more conservative recommendation throughout the duration of the pregnancy is what we have at this time. I've also seen a recommendation from CDC that talks about deferring pregnancy for some people. Does that fit into the counseling as well? There have been some other countries, ministries of health, that have recommended that their citizens consider deferring pregnancy for some period of time. I believe El Salvador was the one that first caught media attention in that regard, giving a really specific timeline of deferral of pregnancy. I don't believe the CDC has recommended deferral because in the continental U.S., we do not have local active ongoing Zika virus through mosquito-borne transmission. The recommendation therein has been prevention through means of avoiding travel if possible. And if a pregnant woman or someone trying to become pregnant must travel, then taking very strict precautions on mosquito avoidance. And if not, intending to get pregnant, very strict attention the provider can take with the patient to uh, contraception. Sounds like a big part of the counseling involves this travel advisory that CDC put out earlier this year. Travel advisory is very clear for pregnant women to consider avoiding travel and postponing travel if possible. And if that's not possible, extraordinarily strict mosquito prevention measures. With that said, the CDC guidance at this time for those who desire to get pregnant is really left because there's such limited data in this regard as a case-by-case discussion. Recommendations are really that the patient discuss with providers what is their timeline for fertility and about when to begin trying to conceive, and then the factors about travel and necessity of travel 
and ability to maintain strict mosquito prevention, whether you're staying in an air-conditioned hotel or visiting a family member in an area where there's no air conditioning or screens on the windows. These are all recommended to be taken on a case-by-case basis where the patient really seeks guidance in this difficult area from providers. Let's talk a little bit more about risk and risk gratification. Who's most at risk, and are pregnant women more at risk for Zika? At this time, they are not found to be at higher risk of actually getting infected, as far as we know. However, the concern is about the maternal to fetal transmission. And at this point, there have been documented Zika virus infections throughout all trimesters of pregnancy. But what we do not know yet is whether there's a higher concern, say, in the first trimester during critical brain growth and critical development time period. And there is a concern that that may be a riskier time time period to have maternal infection based on other congenital infections and based on the limited data we have to date. Additionally, when a woman is infected during pregnancy, we do not yet know the risk of the fetus getting infected. Furthermore, if the fetus is infected, we do not yet know the actual risk of microcephaly or other adverse outcomes. That led to conservative recommendations of prevention and avoidance Based on what we know now, how strong is the link between Zika and microcephaly? At this point, it's difficult to say that there is a proven causality, but the more and more information we are getting, the more concerning that there is a link. The link is appearing stronger every week. This was first thought to be of concern in Brazil. And this started out with physicians noticing a mysterious illness in Brazil with the symptoms of fever and rash and conjunctivitis and joint pain that seemed different than the chikungunya or dengue viruses. Pediatricians, neonatologists, pediatric neurologists started to notice this increase in cases of severe microcephaly. And that really was what led to further evaluation. At this point now, we have some limited population data indicating increases in microcephaly in areas that have had Zika spreading throughout the population, and we have patient-level data that have indicated Zika virus found in amniotic fluid of women who had symptoms of Zika virus during pregnancy and fetuses with abnormalities. The evidence really is mounting that there is a link there, but there still is much to learn. American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has issued some guidelines. What I'm thinking of is uh, some of their discussions about women at risk or where Zika might be suspected and the uh, follow-up with fetal ultrasounds. Recommendations are consistently evolving among the group. As testing has become more available, then we clearly can use that to guide further complex healthcare decisions along the way in the pregnancy, including the frequent need for serial ultrasounds on an every three to four week basis to evaluate for the development of microcephaly or other abnormalities. At this point, CDC and ACOG are recommending one ultrasound, even if there's a negative test result in a maternal case where there was travel or possible exposure. However, if that one ultrasound was normal and testing was negative, that providers who are caring for pregnant women and the patient can move on to routine care. The testing can provide some utility in both the positive results and the negative results. Let's talk about Guillain-Barre. I know that's been another feature associated with Zika virus infection, but how much do we know? 
We still have a lot to learn about the association of Guillain-Barre. At this point, the limited data that we have are that countries, Brazil, and one or two other countries that have had Zika virus outbreaks have noticed an uptick in their number of Guillain-Barre cases. With that said, as we all know on this podcast, these are rare events, Guillain-Barre, and so the uptick is still a rare event. Also, as all of us on this discussion know, Guillain-Barre can be difficult to pin down a certain trigger. Of course, we see this in the U.S. occasionally and is described as an autoimmune response triggered by commonly a virus or potentially a GI illness like Campylobacter or even more rarely a vaccine. I imagine that this will require not only extensive study, but large population-based surveillance and also more in-depth study of looking for all of the possible viruses. Some of the cases that have been reported in the Americas, there's a general population uptick, and then there have been some cases where people had Guillain-Barre and reported Zika virus symptoms previously. But those cases need to be lab-confirmed and also need to rule out other viruses that may have a factor either additionally or it was due to another virus and that Zika was unrelated. With that said, for testing in New York State, that is one criteria of eligibility that if someone has been in one of these areas of ongoing active mosquito-borne transmission in the Americas and then develops Guillain-Barre, then we would certainly test. And we do not give a specific timeline on that, as we know that Guillain-Barre is typically days to weeks after the trigger. So this could occur days to weeks after possible Zika virus infection. So anyone who has been in those areas and develops Guillain-Barre, we would recommend and offer the testing. I think that speaks to the evolving nature of Zika. Let's move more local now and talk about what we've seen in New York State. Have there been any cases of Zika virus infection in New York? We have had cases of Zika virus infection in New York. We are now up to 33 cases, 18 in New York City, outside of New York City, and 15 in New York City. We have received almost 900 specimens that we've tested, and all of these cases have been travel-associated. We do not have any local vector-borne, mosquito-borne cases here in New York. As we move into mosquito season, any additional recommendations regarding avoiding mosquito bites, environmental issues, those kinds of things? We certainly recommend mosquito prevention measures and insect repellents and mosquito control measures on persons' individual properties. But I will also ask our vector-borne diseases director, Brian Backinson, to comment as well on further mosquito prevention and control measures. Aedes albopictus is is the mosquito that Dr. Dufort has mentioned earlier with regards to being a potential transmitter of Zika in New York. We're not entirely sure that it can transmit in real life quite yet. But the main thing about Aedes albopictus is it has natural history or life characteristics that make it a little bit difficult to control. It tends to be an aggressive daytime biter. It tends to bite people often. And it has a really limited flight range. Only a couple hundred meters is really all it flies from where it first hatches from eggs. And then where it hatches from eggs is typically in small containers. You may see them in things like tree holes and so forth, but more so artificial containers. Things like clogged gutters or buckets, wheelbarrows, canoes, things like that use tires things that are kind of flipped upside down on someone's property, trying to aggressively educate the general public about what they can do to prevent mosquito bites, but perhaps more importantly, 
about what they can do to prevent breeding habitats in and around their home. Things like making sure gutters are clean, making sure any containers, trash cans, buckets, things like that are flipped over. County health departments may play a strong role in going out to properties where a locally acquired case may be to try and see if there's ways to enforce that type of removal of breeding habitat in those particular properties. This particular mosquito, Aedes albopictus, is one that is a little bit different from the one that seems to be doing a lot of the transmitting in Central and South America, which is Aedes aegypti. Aedes aegypti is a fickle mosquito. It tends to sip. It tends to be very skittish, which really means that what happens is it may take a little bit of blood and then fly to another person, take a little bit of blood, fly to another person, take a little bit of blood, fly to another person before it eventually gets a full blood meal. And in that case, what happens is you potentially have one mosquito that can infect five, six, seven people during the course of getting one particular blood meal, as opposed to Aedes albopictus, which will sit on your arm until it's full of blood before it winds up using that blood meal to try and lay eggs later on. We tend to see more explosive outbreaks where more and more people can become infected in areas where Aedes aegypti is involved because of the way it feeds as opposed to Aedes albopictus because it feeds on one person and then kind of moves on from there. Good. Thanks for those practical suggestions about prevention. Let's close with uh, the higher tech version of prevention. Where are we with vaccine? That's a great question. Currently, there is no vaccine, nor do we have any specific antiviral preventive measure or treatment. With that said, there is much work that is starting right now in looking at vaccine. And one reassuring feature is the dengue vaccine. Dengue is a very closely related virus. And so the fact that we now have a new dengue vaccine and that dengue is very closely related brings promise be quite as long as it would have otherwise. Additionally, many of you may have seen that President Obama proposed $1.8 billion being put forth towards addressing the Zika virus outbreak, and that would include international efforts, that would include assisting other countries, that would include prevention and control in our southern states where we do have Aedes aegypti, and then this next tier would be throughout states where we have Aedes albopictus and that funds will be brought to NIH and put toward development through a fast track to develop a Zika virus vaccine. Thank you, Dr. Dufour, for that very elegant discussion of Zika virus, and thank you for listening to this podcast. This podcast was brought to you by the Medical Society of the State of New York's Committee on Emergency Preparedness and Disaster Terrorism Response through a grant from the New York State Department of Health. Please note that you can view the Medical Matters webinar titled Zika Virus, an Evolving Story, and get CME credit by going to http colon slash slash cme.misney.org. Thank you, Dr. Dufort, and this is Dr. Bill Valenti signing off.